I have a friend who does not live in Dallas any longer, but uh, when he was here, uh, there were times when he would uh, be soliciting funds for particular Christian ministry, and when he did, he would invite men out for breakfast, and he would say to them, uh, Joe, I'm going to invite you out to breakfast uh, this week, and I want you to know I'm paying for it, but I also want you to know that I'm going for your wallet. And uh, I always liked that about my friend, because at least you knew at the front end where it was going. I am not going for your wallets today, but I have to say to you that uh, I am going to press you for a commitment to a study of the character of God, and not just to hear one, but to pursue one on your own. It seems to me, even from what I have uh, seen in, uh, in our service this morning, that God is already preparing people to focus on God. Uh, I am not absolutely uh, committed to it, but at least in principle, I have been committed to pursuing the attribute of the power of God next Sunday. And I find it interesting that that was the focus of our worship service this morning. What I'd like to do is, is to just uh, try and tempt you, if I may use that word very loosely, to uh, pursue the uh, study of the character of God. If you happen to read in your newspaper yesterday in the religion section, there was an article that uh, was written about one of the co-authors of a book, uh, and the article was entitled, Letting God Grow Up. And then it was uh, the book title of which this Jewish rabbi was a co-author was entitled Stupid Ways and Smart Ways to Think About God. It was kind of an interesting article, and I suppose it would be an interesting book if one had time to read things like that. But uh, the, the author obviously is saying to us that as we grow up and we mature, we ought to think differently about God. I, I think actually it works the opposite way. I think that as we think more accurately about God, we will grow up and mature. And uh, there were some aspects of man's thinking about God that he criticized that I would agree with. But one of the aspects about God, which he uh, attributes to a childish uh, attitude toward God, is the aspect of the wrath of God. And uh, it seems as though he is saying that we ought to grow out of that as we get older and more mature in our thinking about God. In the final analysis, it seems to me that what he is saying is we ought to think of God the way we would like to think of him. And I would suggest to you that we need to think about God the way he is. And the way God is is not the way we would like to think about him. So that when we study the attributes of God, we will find that we must adjust ourselves to him and to the way he is. God does not conform to the way we would like him to be. I'd like to begin by, uh, if, if I may, turning back in, in uh, recent history, some of these men, most of them that I'm going to refer to are dead. J.I. Packer, to my knowledge, is still alive, although he's uh, moving on in his years. But I'd like to, uh, to, first of all, begin with the recommendation of great men of God as to the importance of the study of God and his character. A.W. Tozer wrote this, it is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. 
the thing that I find interesting about A.W. Tozer's words is, you want to say to it, you should have lived till now. And think about what you would say in the light of man's thoughts of God in this day. Tozer goes on to say this, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her, speaking of the church. A.W. Pink, who also has some excellent uh, books, uh, one called The Attributes of God and the other is entitled Gleanings uh, in the Godhead, among others that he has written. But Pink says this, the God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences, is a figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom formed gods of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal minds. Luther years ago, uh, wrote in one of his letters to Erasmus, the scholar, these words, Your thoughts of God are too human. I would like to suggest that we have not progressed, regressed. We don't even think about God. It is bad enough to say that our thoughts of God are too human-like. We don't even think about God. Go to the average bookstore, Christian bookstore, and uh, try to draw from the shelf a book of substance. When Craig and I were overseas, he was mentioning that a, a professor at the seminary had told him that uh, one of the recent books that he had written that focused on God was not published and would not be published by the typical evangelical publishers because it wouldn't sell. They don't go on the bookshelves. What you find is now man is looking within himself. The Christian is looking within himself or herself to find their identity. They're trying to love themselves so that they can love God. And I suggest to you that we must stop doing that and we must start looking Godward, not manward. Fortunately, there are some good books on, uh, on God and uh, many of them are in our library. And as we go along, I'm going to suggest some to you. But this psalm basically says the same thing that Luther was. God says in Psalm 50, verse 21, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was like you. Man is making God after his own image. That's really what it comes down to. Man is making God like himself, rather than man being conformed to the image of God. I'd like to suggest that there are great men of God who have suggested to us over the centuries that the study of God is our highest calling, our greatest privilege, our greatest ambition. If you notice some of the books on the attributes of God, you will find that several of them turn to these words of Spurgeon that were written a number of years ago in a sermon of his in the book on the uh, book of Malachi. Spurgeon says, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul 
is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. That same sermon, he says, the proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can engage the attention of a child of God is the same, the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of the great God, which he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go on our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. J.I. Packer has written these words, and I like them perhaps the best because he turns us back to Scripture with respect to the pursuit of God. What were we made for? To know God. What aim shall we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? The knowledge of God. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Those are the words of our Lord from John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and, in, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Jeremiah 9:23. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? The knowledge of himself. God says, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Hosea 6, 6. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, and compelling goal can there be than to know God? Years ago at Believer's Chapel, one of the elders uh, was, was speaking to me and to others about a particular couple who had a problem in their marriage. And he said... They ought to study the attributes of God. And I thought to myself, that is really dumb. That, that is just totally irrelevant. Uh, I've changed my mind. It wasn't nearly as foolish as I thought. But I think that many of us, when we come to the subject of the attributes of God, we look at it in sort of theological terms. It's just, just an academic study, something that really isn't that practical, but that... Uh, we, we probably ought to do anyway, uh, whether it's practically valid or not. I'd like to move, if I can, to uh, the practical benefits of a study of the attributes of God. And I'd like to begin, once again, with the words of J.I. Packer and then move to a number of scriptural categories that I think demonstrate how the attributes of God should affect and impact our life in a way that ought to make this study mandatory for every believer. Here's what Packer says. Why need anyone take time off today for the kind of study you propose? 
Surely a layman, at any rate, can get on without it. After all, this is 1972. I kind of get a giggle out of that. I, I had forgotten how old the book Knowing God is. It may be old, folks, but it's still one of the best things going out there, and you ought to have it and read it. And if you have read it, you ought to read it again. This is 1972 and not 1855. A fair question, but there is, I think, a, a convincing answer to it. The questioner clearly assumes that a study of the nature and character of God will be unpractical and irrelevant for life. In fact, however, it is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. What are some of the practical benefits of studying the attributes of God? Well, let me suggest a few for you to, uh, to reflect upon. And then I want to turn to a couple of men in the Old Testament who uh, coming to know God more fully was a, for whom it was a transforming experience. First of all, the attributes of God are the basis of morality. The attributes of God are the basis for morality. There is in the last verse of the book of Judges, the statement which is actually a repetition of a statement that's made a number of times in the book. Now, there, were in those there was in those days no king in Israel, comma, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you think that through a little bit, you say to yourself, well, the problem is that they didn't have any human king. They only had judges. <laughs> you go a little further and you will see that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelites say to Samuel, give us a king like all of the other nations. And Samuel is very distressed at what he hears the people of Israel say because their motives are wrong. And God there says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as king. So that when we go back to the book of Judges and the book says to us, in those days there was no king in Israel. In the final analysis, what we must say is, God was not king in Israel. And therefore, every man did what was right in his own eyes. When God was not exalted, when God did not reign and rule from their perspective, obviously from a divine perspective, God was at work bringing about his purposes. But in their hearts, God did not rule and reign. And when that was so, their morality was based upon what they perceived to be right or wrong. I'll go one step further. It seems to me that when in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel wanted a king, what they really wanted was an idol. They wanted somebody they could see who would go before them into battle. So leadership for them was corrupt. I must say to you today, I think the same is true. In Christian circles today, there is a whole lot of talk about leaders. And in my estimation, much of it, much of it, presses hard toward idolatry. We want a man we can see rather than to serve the God we cannot see. 
And those whom we should follow are those who are pointing not to themselves, but are pointing to him. That's the kind of leadership that I think we need. I notice in Christian circles today that there is an erosion in the area of Christian morality. Now, I'm not talking about the things that used to be areas of debate. debate. Uh, smoking, drinking, uh, the, the typical kinds of things uh, over which Christians used to, to uh, discuss and debate amongst themselves. I'm talking about those things which the Scripture calls abhorrent to God. And I find Christians now looking at those sins which are repulsive to God and saying, like their culture, it's not really so bad. And I suggest to you that the reason why the Christian church is eroding in its own moral sense is because it has lost the vision for God. See, that's what knowing God is about, is when you know God and his holiness and his perfection, those are the things, therefore, that become the basis for your morality. And when you look, for example, at the Ten Commandments, when you look at the law, I find it interesting, first of all, that the law was not given until after the Exodus. It was not given until, obviously, after the creation. But there is a, a fair bit of history that passes. You know why? Because before God gave the standards of morality, he first of all revealed himself. And I believe that when you go back to the commandments of the Old Testament, what you find is the commandments that God has laid down for Israel are those things which come forth from his character. We avoid sin because sin is abhorrent to a holy God. We avoid lying because God is the God of truth. We must show compassion on the widows and the orphans because God is a God of compassion. Morality is based upon the character of God. And when we lose sight of God's character, we lose the anchoring for our own moral system. And I think we have long since lost it. A study of the attributes of God enables us to think rightly about God. And I want to go one step beyond that. Thinking wrongly about God is where man's dilemma all started. You ever think back to the fall? When you go back to the fall of man, it all began with a wrong thought about God. What was it that Satan was doing when he says, Hath God said? And in the raising of that question, Satan is really impugning the character of God. Number one, Satan is saying, in about as bold a way as he can, God is a liar. Thou shalt surely not die. God had just said, thou shalt die. God is a liar. But not only is God a liar, the way in which Satan portrays God to Eve is in a way that makes God look like he is not really seeking man's best interest. That God is somehow selfishly hoarding certain things for himself and withholding those from others. So that it's the character of God that is first impugned and then the commands of God that are disobeyed. And I suspect that that is the way it is today. Ultimately, I think you could say sin begins with an inadequate grasp of the doctrine of who God is. Tozer said this in the knowledge of the holy. I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts of God. I think he's right. 
And I think the scriptures bear that out. Thinking wrongly about God is the basis on which I think sins come about. Knowing God as fully as possible is our destiny. You ever think about that? Knowing God is ultimately what our hope is. You see in 1 John, for example, chapter 3, those words, where it says, Beloved, verse 2, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it is not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. It is our destiny to know God fully and therefore to be like him. It is our hope. I suggest to you that the study of the attributes of God is of primary importance to our spiritual life for a number of ways. We talk often in evangelistic terms, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely right. But the only way to have a relationship with a person is to know the person. And if we are to have a personal relationship with God, then we must know him as a person. We must know what he is like. We must know him intimately in his character, in his attributes, in his nature. You notice also in uh, Peter, first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, We have become partakers of the divine nature. To know God is not only to know what God is like, it is to know in the final analysis what we are like. Isn't that an amazing thing? If we want to know what we are like in our new creation that is unlike the old man, if we want to find out what the real me is about, we must know what God is like. Because we have become partakers of his nature. And if we are to be like him, then we must know what he is like. That's what 1 John 3 says. We will see him as he is. The only way that men will become like God is to know what God is like. And the way that we know what God is like is to study his attributes, his character, and his nature. The promises of God are only as good as the character of God. When you get right down to it, God has made a lot of promises in the Bible. But they all are contingent upon one, God's nature, his power, his ability to perform them, and secondly, his character, his faithfulness to perform them. Bottom line is, we must trust in God's character, or none of his promises are of any value at all. So all that the scriptures say to us by way of promise, by way of our future hope, are all predicated on who God is. By the way, I think you can also see, and I, I noticed this in the study of 1 Peter, but the word ignorance and knowledge as it is used, you can reverse that. If you want to go back to what the cause is, the basis for man's demise, for his downfall, it is ignorance of God. It is ignorance of God that is damning. It is ignorance of God that is destructive and that leads to death. It is the knowledge of God that leads to life. A study of the attributes of God can enhance our worship. When you worship God, you worship God for who he is. That's the thing I like about the Apostle Paul. Do you notice in his epistles, 
he starts talking to us about God and right in the middle of his epistle, he just starts to worship. And, and you get in the book of Romans and he says, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who could have ever said to God, this is the way you ought to do it? Worship is the result of knowing God. And we cannot worship as we should and must without first knowing the God whom we are to worship. The study of the attributes of God will enhance our witness. This is kind of interesting. But it goes back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Somebody, by the way, was right at that passage this morning in the worship time. Verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <laughs> Our task is not only to proclaim his excellencies, it is to demonstrate them. And I think that's what he's really saying is we live out the excellencies of God as we become partakers of the divine nature as we begin to partake of who God is, then we are to live that out. We are to manifest Christ in all of his excellencies to a lost and dying world. And I think that in our day, we think that the problem with evangelism is that we have uh, we've, we've not been properly taught on the methods of evangelism. i got to tell you, I think that's just totally wrong. <laughs> what class in evangelism did the early church have? I mean, here were these people who were new converts. Acts chapter 8, for instance, Acts chapter 11. These people go out and, and these new converts go wherever they are. And many of those who went from Jerusalem went out and they spoke to no one but Jews alone. But there were other people who just couldn't be quiet. Why is that? Because I'll tell you, something we think is really great, something we think is really fantastic, we're going to talk about. We will talk about it. It's just going to happen. That's the way we are. We boast about what we think is great. And when our view of God is that he is, my may I say, the greatest, move over Muhammad Ali and, and others, when we see God as the greatest, we can't be quiet. We can't be quiet. It is not that we don't have the right methods. It is that we have lost the sense of the greatness and the majesty of God. And when we regain that, we must praise him. And as I understand scripture, evangelism is simply praise. It is simply men praising. And they praise God so much they can't stop praising him in church. They just praise him everywhere they go. Not, not trivial praise the Lord phrases here and there. But they simply acknowledge God and his greatness in everything they do and say. Evangelism is a result of a vision of the greatness of God. Isn't it interesting that a man like Paul, how did his spiritual life begin? With a vision of God. And he never forgot, he never forgot that vision. But that vision of God continued to grow throughout Paul's life. And all through his life, he is pressing forward, saying that I may know him and the power, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Knowing God is the basis for our witness and our evangelism. Seeking to know God will enhance our study of the scriptures. This is a really kind of interesting thing to me. 
but I believe it to be true. Let me start with some of the problem passages, and I mean by that some of the difficult prophetic texts. Somebody in India was uh, saying that they were doing a personal study of the book of Revelation. And, and I, I preached through Revelation, and I, I have to admit, I, I could go back and I could start preaching again, and I'd start all over because that book to me is imponderable. But I think that maybe a lot of our trouble with the book of Revelation is we are looking for the wrong things. What is it God meant for us to see in a book like Revelation? And, and we get to the symbolism and we want to crack the code, as it were, for the symbolism of Revelation and know all the mysteries. Let me suggest to you that the next time you read Revelation, you read it with this in mind. What is God like? And I suggest to you that you will have the message of the book of Revelation, the primary message and the primary impact is not trying to say, what does the future hold in terms of a, a nice, exact, precise plan of all future events? I don't think that's the purpose. I think the purpose of that book is to reveal to us what God is like and the splendor and the glory of that which is to come. Now, go back to the Old Testament. To those books that, if you were honest, some people are, if when you're reading through the Bible, you just either speed read those or you just pass them by. Take those, those most boring books of the penitent, like Leviticus, and uh, look at them now through the eyes of David, who says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. I would suggest to you that when you read through the Old Testament and those most boring portions of it in your mind, with this purpose, what is God like? But all of a sudden, the law will become a different book, a, a, a different uh, set of revelation to you than simply something that is old and dusty and boring. When we read scriptures to know God, we will find him there, and we will find those scriptures worthwhile. I think, by the way, that, that a knowledge of God is the answer to a scholasticism. I've noticed in the last few years that there have been those who have been academic Christians. Christians who were well known in the academic world and they have and they have made departures of one kind or another to have a deeper spiritual experience with God. And I can understand why that's true. But I suggest to you that the problem is that the book was a textbook, not a book to know God. And when you come to the scriptures as a revelation of who God is, you will not find the study of the scriptures, merely an academic exercise, but something much deeper than that. Basically, the scriptures give us a whole new perspective on life, and the attributes of God become the perspective from which we should view life. That really came to me in Second Peter when Peter was talking, remember, and he went back to Psalm 90, which I'm going to get to in a moment if I can, when he talks about the eternality of God and he says that a day with God is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Once you begin to look at time from God's perspective, 
you will live your life differently. The, the, the attributes of God become the perspective from which we should view life. And when we view life from that perspective, everything changes. For example, suffering. Suffering is in the Psalms and elsewhere, certainly in our experience, the uh, opportunity, the reason for laying accusations at God's feet, isn't it? Why? The questions that we ask God are accusations in, in essence. And you notice that when men come to God in the Psalms and they raise those questions and they unmask the frustrations and the, the, the difficulties and the doubts in their life, ultimately what is it that the psalmists come to rest upon? It is not the fact that God in their lifetime necessarily has acted or will. They rather come to rest in who God is. And they see their suffering now in a different way. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 can say, suffering is for me the opportunity to know God, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now suffering is that which not moves me further from God, that makes me look at God as distant. It brings God near to me. I know him in a deeper way because of suffering. Service. One of the big words in Christian circles today is burnout. Christians are burning out. And maybe they are. But I think it's because we have a distorted view of service. And I was thinking about that in relationship to Martha and Mary. Here's Martha serving the Lord, busy, working up a sweat out there in the kitchen. And she comes in and says, you know, what's the matter, Lord? Here's my sister down here worshiping at your feet doing nothing productive at all. And Jesus says, she has chosen the one thing that is most important of all. Service is never to be in competition with our worship. Service is to be an outworking of our worship. And oftentimes Christians, I think, are looking at service wrongly because they don't look at it in the light of the adoration and the worship of God. One more thing I want to say about the study of the attributes of God is the only way that we can know God is through his attributes. God is invisible. Scripture says no man has seen God at any time. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. There were, there were visible appearances of God in the Old Testament. There were, weren't there? <laughs> and you notice that never any two of them, no two of them, I've got to get my English right here. I've been away too long. No two of them are ever alike. No two manifestations of God are ever alike. Did you ever think about that? Now, you may see similarities in Revelation to the manifestation of God in the book of Daniel or something, but they're never identical. Why? Because those are only likenesses. For example, in, in uh, Exodus, in the text that was read, it says that God spoke to Moses face to face. But in that very same text, it says, you cannot look at me. You cannot look at my face. You can only see my backside. Now, God didn't literally show his back. What it was saying is, you couldn't live if you saw all of me at once. Man could not even exist in, in, in the full blaze of the glory of God. It would be like standing next to the sun. It would just vaporize us. So, we don't see God physically. We see him in terms of his attributes. And the manifestations of God are simply manifestations of certain dimensions of that. I want to come back to that in one second in Exodus chapter 3. Somebody will say to me, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus came in the flesh. That's right. How tall was Jesus? How much did he weigh? What do you know about the physical appearance of Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Save this. 
he was of no form or comeliness, lest we should be drawn to him, Isaiah. Jesus was not good looking because Jesus did not appeal to men in terms of outward appearance. Notice that when Saul was chosen as the king, he looked good. Now, David did too, but David was a man who had a heart for God. That was the inner beauty of David. When we study our Lord Jesus Christ, we study his actions, and ultimately we see in him grace and truth. In effect, we see the attributes of God, but not all of them. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was less than God. I am saying some of the attributes of God were veiled. That's why you have those, those sudden blasts of glory at the transfiguration and elsewhere. And I have to tell you, when you look at somebody like John, who is leaning on the bosom of Jesus saying, well, who is it, Lord, who's going to betray you? Boy, when you get John in the book of Revelation and he's looking at the glorified Lord, he is seeing the Lord now with a much fuller splendor. So that even in Christ, while God manifested himself, there was a veiling of some of the dimensions. We did not see in Christ the full wrath of God, for example. We will, but we have not yet seen that full manifestation of his wrath. And even in, in terms of Christ, when we see him described in the New Testament, we see him described in terms of his character. That is the way that we come to know God. Now, I want to just quickly point you to two men in the Old Testament whose transformation came from seeing God as he was. The first I want to mention briefly, and that's Job. <coughs> in, in, in Job, you'll notice those final words in the book of Job. Rather interesting. I've got to get back into this book but Job basically is coming to God with the question, why? Job was a righteous man, but as Job continued to be afflicted and to suffer, he began to speak uh, in a way that was obviously not altogether correct. What was it that changed Job's perspective on suffering? Well, let me suggest, first of all, what it wasn't. Job never understood why. He never understood why. And the change in Job's life did not happen because he knew that his suffering was going to leave him and God was going to bring pro uh, uh, prosperity. It never happened for that reason, thank you. But it happened because Job came to see God correctly. Look at this statement. And I had not really noticed it. Until recently in Job 42, verse 7. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job. And what are these words? <laughs> he says to Job, were you there when I uh, created the worlds? Were you there telling me uh, exactly where I ought to put the moon in relationship to everything and the sun in relationship to everything? Can you explain to me all the mysteries that you see in nature? And what God is doing is showing to him who he is. And once Job comes again, to a renewed and even enhanced view of who God is, then all of these other things don't matter because what he really trusts in is the character of God, not the circumstances of the moment. But God says this in Job 42, 7, And after it came about, the Lord spoke of these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, notice this, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. They had wrong thoughts of God. 
Now, much of what they said was true from a human point of view, but they were wrong about God. And Job was right about God. And I'm saying to you that when we think right about God, the great dilemmas of life pale because of who God is. Now I want to go to Moses quickly in conclusion and suggest to you that knowing God was a consuming passion. I, I know that we look at a man like David and we say, David, uh, the scripture says, David was a man after God's own heart. He was. He was. I think, by the way, that what that means is he was a man who had a heart to know God. He wanted to know God's heart. That is, he wanted to know God's character. So that David, in that sense, is just like Moses. But remember Moses, uh, when he has his first encounter with God, the encounter is with the burning bush. Had a new, probably people, undoubtedly people have said this and written this for centuries, but somehow it did not come to my attention. God says... I am who I am. That was a statement that was referred to in this book, in this article about this book in the newspaper. When God says, I am, has sent you, God is claiming to be eternal. But what did Moses see in the bush? I mean, I always thought, you know, the bush was a curiosity. But what was it about the bush that was fascinating? It burned, but it was never consumed. I mean, any of us know that if you burn something long enough, it burns up. It didn't. The bush was a visual picture of the eternality of God. It's a picture that attests to what God is saying. I am has sent you. Now, I want to jump ahead for a moment because we, we were at it in Second Peter. But the one psalm that we know that was written by Moses is written about what attribute of God? Well, more attributes. But what's the focus? The eternality of God. Isn't it interesting? The eternality of God was the, was the one aspect of his knowledge of God which sustained him. <laughs> and I believe that Moses wrote Psalm 90 at a time when Israelites were dropping like flies in the wilderness as men were dying. And what he came to see is that man must live in time in the light of eternity. Man, as a temporal being, must place his faith in the God who is eternal. And doing so is to live life in a vastly different way. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Now, notice uh, the, the fall of the uh, Israelites in, in uh, Exodus chapter 32 as they make this idol. And here's something that I guess I hadn't put together all, all together in my mind. But when Moses is up on the mountain, God has already given him much of the, of the law, much of the instructions about the, uh, the tabernacle and, and, and so on that, that is going to take place, has not yet given, well, he's given the Ten Commandments and they're going to be smashed, so he'll have to give them again. But much revelation has been given. And Moses has been up there now for 40 days or going on 40 days, and they say in Exodus 32, verse 1, Come, make us a God who will go before us. By the way, that's not unlike the words that are used with respect to a king. Uh, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. There's an interesting repetition of this. Who brought you up from Egypt? Who brought us up from Egypt? Because God says to Moses, you brought them up. Moses says to God, you brought them up. The Israelites say of Moses, he brought us up. And, and, and the question is, who brought us up? 
Well, ultimately, God did, of course. But they want a visual image or representation of that, and so they make this golden calf. Here's the thing that fascinates me as I go back in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 24. And I'm thinking in particular now because Aaron is the guy who has who has been tasked with with the the uh, the uh, making of this idol. And by the way, you remember that one of the first commandments that God has given in Exodus chapter 20 is that you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water that is uh, around the earth. No, make no idol. And here they are saying, in effect, make us an idol. Here's the amazing thing. When you look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 9, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Now, again, I'm saying to you, they saw him in the sense that they saw something of him, an appearance of him, a representation of him. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, and yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. The leaders of Israel are there, and they see God. And they are the very ones in Exodus chapter 32, Aaron in front of them all, who are now making an image that has nothing to do with what they saw of God. It has everything to do with what the heathen culture of their day saw of God. That is an amazing thing. And the interesting thing to me is that the Israelites kept saying to Moses, you go talk to God. You go up there before his holiness, and, and I know God was saying, build barriers and tell the people to stay back, but the people were saying, saying, yeah, we want God to keep his distance. We want God to be distant and far away. Don't get him close to us. And in contrast to them is Moses. And so in Exodus 30, uh, two, uh, 33 and 34, we see this picture, this description of Moses, and, and now... What an intimate fellowship Moses has, as distinct from all other Israelites who are kept, as it were, as arm lengths from God. Here is Moses who would go up, and every time Moses would go to meet with God in the tent of meeting, all Israel would stand and watch him enter into that tent. And remember, Paul talks about the glory that would diminish as he came out. The, the glow would fade, and so he'd veil his face so that you wouldn't see the diminishing of that glow. And, and it says in verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. That is as intimate with God as any Israelite would have ever conceived of getting. But you know what's interesting about it? It wasn't intimate enough. Isn't that interesting? Moses, who had a more intimate relationship with God, who saw more of God's glory than any other Israelite, was not content with knowing God on that level. And what does he ask of God? Show me thy glory. Notice that he cannot see all of God's glory. He could not behold it and live. And so God speaks in terms of him seeing his backside, but not his face. Verse 20 of chapter 33, for no man can see me and live. And then he goes and puts him in a place where he'll stand there on the rock and God's glory is passing by. The question is, my friend, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? I think I want to name this series, Show Me Thy Glory. But what is the glory of God? Look again at verse 5 and following of chapter 34. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What is the glory of God? It is the character. It is the character of God. If we would see God's glory, we would see his attributes. That's what this is about. There is the glory. If we would seek the glory of God, we will seek to know who he is. Remember the final prayer of our Lord? That is the prayer in John 17. He says, glorify me now. And he says, let them behold my glory. The desire of our Lord is for us to behold his glory. And we do so as we come to know his character and respond to it. One last thing I must say. When we come face to face with the character of God, it forces us to make a decision. We will either bow down in worship and adoration and adapt to him. Or we will turn away and adapt our concept of him. That's what Romans 1 is all about. When men saw in creation the invisible characteristics of God, namely his divine nature and his power, when men do not fall before God in worship and adoration, when they do not acknowledge their sin and ask for repentance, then men corrupt the image of God to an image that suits their own fancy. Mark chapter 5, remember when Jesus crosses over the sea and there's the demoniac there and he casts the 2,000 demons or more out of him. You remember that the people of the city, when they heard about it, they came and they said to Jesus, we'd like you to go away. Some people, when they come face to face with who God really is, are going to ask him to leave the room. And so I'm saying to you that it is the highest pursuit. It is the highest calling. It is also a dividing line. If we come to grips with who God is, we must either adapt to him or we will remove ourselves from him. The people of Israel departed and made an image as they preferred. And Moses pressed hard upon God and said, I want to see thy glory. My prayer for each of us is that that will be our request of God. Show me thy glory as we pursue the characteristics of God. Father, help us as we contemplate this study, study and this subject to commit ourselves to pursue hard after you. Help us to say, as Moses did, show me thy glory. And may we see more of you. And may we glorify and worship and praise you as we do. In Jesus' name.